Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Today we're talking about big law firm Quinn Emanuel. It's facing allegations it used ethically dubious tactics to stop young attorneys from departing when high-profile partners left to start their own firm. We'll be joined by senior legal industry reporter Sam Reisman to tell us about the contract provision Quinn tried to leverage and what it means for attorneys who want to leave their firms. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about some noise heard during oral arguments at the federal circuit that was no laughing matter. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. So, what's going on, guys? Well, I'm excited because we get to make our our thrilling return to our coverage of the Bachelorette series. From the legal perspective. From the legal perspective. I knew you'd want to talk about this. Yeah. I caught up with the first episode so we could have this chat. Is this like a first time thing? Like, have you, do you, are you a regular watcher of this show? I've only watched like very in and out. So I watched it when it was like a new show years and years yeah, ago. Yeah, okay. And then I did watch that season where it was Aaron Rodgers' brother. Sure, the one sure. That oh, okay. So that was a couple years ago. Yeah, Because yeah, if you've yeah. never seen it before, it is like a dystopian program yeah. to watch. Like it's 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 horrible. It's dreck. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, addictive dreck. You know, but yeah. that really answers a question I was going to pose to you, which is <laughs> when do we see Bill Donahue as one of the Bachelors? Wow. Great, great question. Well, uh, but I, clearly not. You're not into this. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, I mean, maybe we'll put together a video for yeah, me. I say we <laughs> We should, we should sabotage him like with with a, with, a, with a video submission. That'd be good. Um, but yeah, we like to, in case anyone doesn't remember, we like to sort of fill people in when attorneys get cast as right. contestants on this show. Curiously, there were no attorneys on the last season of The Bachelor, which has female contestants. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the second uh, season in a row of The Bachelorette. That's a theme on this show. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think we should Under focus on this in the next yeah. uh, uh, edition of the Glass Ceiling Report. But uh, we'll go through we'll go through this quick. There's just one, uh, just one attorney. Uh, his name is Nick Spetsis. Uh, this is bad radio, but we got to look at him here. Handsome sure. guy. Sure. You know? uh, he's 27 years old. He's from Orlando. His bachelorette bio reads, he is a fun-loving attorney with a zest for life. When he's not winning trials, you can catch him in his signature tracksuits being the life of the party. Nick is a self-proclaimed weekend warrior who loves brunches, barbecues, and the beach. Nothing says weekend warrior like brunches. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I looked into it a little bit. He works uh, at, uh, at, like I said, the Orlando office of uh, a regional firm. How's this for... How, How's this for a law firm name? Heraclides Gelman Hall Indec Goodman Waters and Traverso. Good heavens. Yeah. Uh, they've got 15 offices throughout the Southeast, uh, ranging from Nashville to Miami. They do workers' compensation, uh, longshore, general liability defense, first property defense, stuff like that. Uh, I, I think yeah. just to button this up for the listeners, if you watched this episode of The Bachelorette, yeah. the way you'll know this is the guy, he came out to greet her in a race car driver suit. Yeah. And then ceremoniously unzipped it and stepped out into his regular suit. Like he had it on over his, which his is, dress clothes. Which is not all that different from his signature track suits, as indicated sure. uh, uh, right. in his bio. From the bio, he seemed like kind of a square, uh, but he got a pretty good edit in the first episode. He just had like a warm disposition about him. Uh, so anyway, Nick from Orlando. And he got a rose, so he's going on to he the next He did, week. yes. That's an important uh, well, bit of reporting let's there. pivot to another warm situation. Global warming. In California. Right. <laughs> where, the, where, where the Bachelorette is. Shot. You know, everybody starts by talking about The Bachelorette and pivots into global warming. Yep. Yeah, that's okay. one of my skills. Uh, yes, that is what we're talking about uh, first uh, to start the show today. Now, from a science perspective, the questions on global warming are just about settled. You know, you know, humans' use of fossil fuels is contributing to the warming of the planet, and that is something that should be addressed by public officials and mm-hmm. humanity at large. Uh, the legal questions, however, about global warming are kind of unsettled, namely... 
uh, can you sue or should you be able to sue, um, you know, the makers uh, and uh, extractors of these fossil fuels right. for their role in climate change? And that is the central question in a very interesting case that's going on in California right now, where uh, the cities of San Francisco and Oakland have sued five sort of big oil companies uh, for their role in uh, in climate change. So we have a pretty robust um uh, coverage of environmental issues here at Law 360, but I think we've actually neglected it here on the Pro Se Podcast. This it's, is our first time. I yeah, think. And, we, and we do a lot of great Enviro coverage here, and for whatever reason, it just it's never bubbled up to the podcast, but uh, we're kind of starting out with like the environmental yeah, issue definitely. now from a legal perspective. Um, so like I say, last year, um, the cities of San Francisco and Oakland sued uh, five, the, really the five big ones, Chevron, ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, Royal Dutch Shell, and BP, uh, for contributing to the rise of climate change. And essentially, the cities have argued that global warming or climate change and its effects are a public nuisance and that the companies who contribute to it should pay for that nuisance. Mm -hmm. And that is a term, you know, public nuisance and nuisance in general pops up a lot in this area of torts, uh, and especially in environmental class actions. And it's most conventionally applied in situations like where if a company digs like a sewage runoff trench too close to like where cattle are grazing, or if if your factory is like Like fumes and putting off noxious odors and stuff, and people sue over that stuff all the time and they win a lot. Um, But now here, the cities, uh, like I say, it's brought by San Francisco and Oakland, are asking the judge overseeing the case to apply this uh, idea of a public nuisance in a more unique way. So they're saying that they've been harmed by this, but what are they seeking from the court? Say they win. What are the remedies that they're looking to get as a city from these big oil companies? So the two cities have moved ahead with a lot of... Um, incredibly expensive infrastructure projects to deal with mm-hmm. rising sea levels, um, which they say is, uh, you know. Now, is that is that reverse? That's not reverse engineered around these like cases, right? Like they no, haven't no, no, done no. more of that as a result of. Right. No, no, not at all. I mean, it's just the the, the sea levels are rising. Uh, right, right. Because so they're putting yeah. this stuff in. Yeah. Yeah, and so they have to do, um, you know, whether it's building seawalls or elevating low lying lands, things like that. There are things they have to do all up and down the coastline mm-hmm. to deal with that. And that stuff costs a lot of money. And sure. they say that the, their their reasoning behind this is well, if you, um, you know, if if you these companies are contributing to this happening, you should pay. You should you know have some role. You know, kick right. in a little bit for us to to pay for it. Um, important question though. We've not yet gotten to damages yet. Um, but uh, informally, the San Francisco's attorney's office has said, um, you know, if, if we if we have it our way, this is easily going to stretch into into the billions of dollars. Wow. I bet the oil companies are ticked off about this they can't be happy to yeah hook for i'm guessing they have a billions. chevron defense oh look at this guy <laughs> rather um, than deference yeah Come on, it's um, good, right? they're not uh they're not too happy about it and that kind of brings us up to speed uh and why we're talking about it now uh last week uh in court they all appeared before uh before judge william alsup who's come up on the show before yep mostly in the context of tech litigation uh, he's overseeing this case because um, all five of the companies have uh, as as you might expect made a motion to toss the suits um, they have various reasons. Um, some of the companies are not like Royal Dutch Shell is not American. They're making jurisdictional claims. Mm-hmm. They say, uh, you know, we're we shouldn't even be sued in, in U.S. federal court over stuff like this. But more to the point, um, they're all kind of saying two things. First of all, they say that the Supreme Court has already interpreted the Clean Air Act to kind of just like shut lawsuits like this down. It shouldn't even get that far. Mm-hmm. And then more importantly, they're saying, you know, Congress has authorized and the executive branch has 
you know, strictly regulated our business. Our business is oil and gas production. If you, the court, step in and put it and put damages on us merely for the act of doing our jobs, you are creating sort of a new de facto regulation, and that's not the role of the And court. the government supports that position, right? That's right. The DOJ right. was called in by Judge Alsup. To, so he was, they, they were invited to weigh in, and they mm-hmm. came in and basically said the same thing. They're, it comes at it from a separation of powers angle. Yeah. So they made all those, um, they made all those arguments uh, and heard sort of rebuttals at a uh, hearing for Judge Alsup last week. So this one sounds like it could be a really big deal in setting some precedent here about how it plays out. You've mentioned Alsip, who we know is a heavy hitter. Who else is involved here? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I say, Alsip is overseeing it, and he's actually already made um, uh, quite a bit of uh, waves in this case. Because um, a few months ago, there was a motion to knock it back down to state court, uh-huh. and he allowed it to proceed at the federal level, which isn't nothing because creating a federal cause of action like raised a lot of eyebrows and sort of, you know, like anything in legal proceedings like this, it's just like. When you even allow the questions to be asked, sure. that is sort of its own right. dramatic thing. So that's uh, that's uh, one big development. Also, if you're listening to this and you and you think it sounds like kind of like a shaky, dubious legal case, you should know that the oil companies certainly aren't uh, hiring their attorneys with that in mind because mm-hmm. they have really lawyered up here. Chevron is taking the lead. Um, for basically all the companies, and they have hired Ted Boutros of Gibson Dunn, uh-huh. who is sort of a legendary Supreme Court litigator um, who did the Walmart Dukes class action case sure. and various other things. On the side of the cities, San Francisco and Oakland, we have Steve Berman, who is a, who uh, sort of most famously got a $200 billion settlement from Big Tobacco in the yeah. 90s. Yeah. So he knows his way around stuff like this. You don't get much bigger than that with uh, yeah, plaintiff's with, with, cases with like plaintiff's this. Side right. Stuff like that. Yeah. It's so um, the, the stakes are extremely high. So, I mean, like you've got all these big names, um, this big judge, and, he, and, and, and even more so, um, the very idea that you could put climate change on trial in this sure. way is just so novel. And we have ways to go yet. Like I said, the judge just heard the dismissal bids. We're going to wait and see what he says there. But if it's allowed to go forward, it's going to draw a lot of eyes and uh, you know, sort of create a really sort of interesting legal question for everyone to ponder. Well, we're staying with our next story in the Bay Area, yeah. I think. Amber, yeah, right? Yeah, we are, because I wanted us to sort of do a bit of an update about something we talked about a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, remember when we talked about that big trial between Apple and Samsung right. about how much Samsung owed in damages for infringing smartphone design patents? Yep. So for anybody who's forgotten about sort of the contours of this case, we delved pretty deep in episode 54. So go back and check that one out. Yeah. Um, but... This one is the one that had some really big numbers. Yeah, play. yeah. What? Uh, let's get a primer on those. Yeah, Samsung said it only owed twenty-eight million dollars. Apple argued that it owed one billion dollars. So they were close together. Yeah. Oh, cool. def- definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a jury decided, and they said that Samsung is on the hook for five hundred and thirty-nine million dollars. Who is here in this case? King Solomon. <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle. So now. Cr- Correct me if I'm wrong. There was a there was an earlier ruling that that got thrown out here, right? Before that, that led to all this. Yeah, definitely. So this is an ongoing smartphone war, and it, it really is that. There's been volleys back and forth for years. The companies had already taken a trip all the way up to the Supreme Court, and at that time, the Supreme Court threw out a 399 million dollar verdict. Yeah. Right. At the same time, they ended this rule that said damages for design patents must be based on an entire infringing oh, product, yeah. right. like the whole, be, phone. We're talking about the whole phone. We're specific to components of the right. phone. Yes. Right. So, yeah, yeah. so in, in this regard, this is a weird outcome at this stage, because the latest jury award is more damages than right. what the Supreme Court struck down, and you would have expected the opposite. So do, do we have any ideas to how the jury 
got like got at this so, new number? So we don't know exactly how the, the jury got to this, but it turns a little bit on this wonky term of art that's about design patents. And I won't get too deep here, but just to talk about it just a little. You can get, you love patents. I, I do. I kind of want to get deep. I'll try to, I'll try to restrain right. myself. The, yeah. Um, so for design patents, a company is selling an, a, a quote, article of manufacture. Yeah. To mm. which this patented design has been applied has to pay the total profit as damages. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's a big question about what is an article of manufacture. And in this case, Apple's actual patents cover the face of the phone and arrangement of icons on a screen. Mm-hmm. So it's these little discrete parts. And at an initial trial in 2012, the jury was instructed that the article of manufacture was the whole phone. Right. So yes. all the money they made on that phone. Right. right. So that's how we got to that $399 million mm-hmm. sum. Then the Supreme Court came in and said, like, no, no, no. You, it can't be the entire product. Right. But they didn't define what that article of manufacture is. Very, so, they were very helpful. Love about when it. they do that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a typical thing we all complain about. You with guys the are smart. Court. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So, so judges tried. They put in a four-part test to figure this out. Yada yada. And then we bring up to the latest damages trial. Samsung said it should just be a component of the phone. So they made the argument to the jury it should mm-hmm. be like the casing or the screen that displays the icons, just parts. Yeah. Apple said the opposite. It should still be the entire phone because the designs were integrated throughout Samsung's infringing devices. So right. It's like these so guys didn't even listen. They, <laughs> well, they apparently that got some traction with the jury because of the outcome here. Right. So one juror had spoken to reporters after the trial and said that the jury decided that the design patent on the layout of the icons did cover Samsung's entire phones because you can't see the icons on the phone without all the underlying circuitry and it's all just so integrated you can't pull it apart. Um, That's a bit of a problem here because Ryan Davis did a great uh, feature about this and attorneys told us that if that accurately reflects how jurors reasoned this out, it's possible that that flies in the face of that Supreme Court ruling that said it can't be this whole thing. Great. More chaos and patent damages uh, landscape. That's great. I mean, I think this (laughs) is one of those situations where it's it's a big reason why many seasoned litigators would tell you not to put a complicated case in front of a jury because it's a crapshoot. Yeah, it is. I mean, when Ryan wrote a really good feature for us, he basically had people telling him that this victory actually makes things worse. Yeah. Um, it <laughs> makes patent design damages less clear than they were before when it was just from the Supreme Court ruling. And many people are now predicting that there will be uh, appeals of this jury verdict that could end up back at the federal circuit. It could also then bounce back up to the yeah. Supreme Court. Yeah. Well, and there's going to be post-trial motions, I assume. Definitely. So, I mean, it, could, it might not even need a trip to the appeals court if it, if it truly is untethered. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to wait and see on this, but there's definitely a possibility that we could see Apple, Samsung at the high court part two. Nice. Our main story deals with the elite big law firm Quinn Emanuel and allegations that it used ethically dubious tactics in an effort to retain talented young attorneys. Disputes over associates are nothing new when partners leave prestigious firms, but Quinn Emanuel is accused of crossing a line by threatening to use plainly unenforceable contract clauses against departing partners. Here to discuss the whole situation is our senior legal industry reporter, Sam Reisman. Welcome back, Sam. Hi, thanks, guys. 
So with this story, there's a ton to unpack here, um, a lot of moving parts. So can you just set us up with the basics about who at the firm left and what happened? Sure. So back in February, uh, this group of pretty high-powered partners at the New York office of Quinn Emanuel left to form Selendi and Gay, this boutique. Um, and when they left, uh, it was it was pretty significant because, as I said, there were some partner group heads among the people leaving. Uh, it was uh, unusually, even then, before this dispute, it was sort of an acrimonious dispute. As you yeah. recall, there was that email. Right. I remember there was an email where John Quinn, the founding partner of Quinn Emanuel, sent to, like a reply all email to the whole firm sort of saying that they had been ungrateful, right? Or- yeah, exactly. And things took a turn even further recently at the end of April when Quinn Emanuel filed uh, a demand for um, arbitration in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. seeking to enforce a clause in the partnership agreements that the partners signed that said that they had to give 10% of their fees from client work that originated at Quinn Emanuel back to Quinn Emanuel for an 18-month period. And so now this week, the, the new firm filed, or I'm sorry, the, the news was reported this week that, that the new firm filed, what, with the state of New York, right? Yeah, on, on May 11th, the Selendi and Gay partners filed under seal, and then it was made public just yeah. on Tuesday, uh, basically seeking to get that uh, that arbitration effort quashed. So let's walk back just a, a little bit. Let's let's rewind, and because at the center of this story are these these provisions in their in the partnership agreements of these these former Quinn attorneys. So explain what these are and and sort of why you know why they're at the center of this of this case. So yeah, this so this is what's called a forfeiture for competition provision, and one of the things that makes this significant is that they are plainly unenforceable in the state of New York. Mm -hmm. The petitioners argue that there's a significant amount of case law backing their position. um, And all of the ethics experts that I spoke to for my story agree. But what it basically is, is a provision, as I said, that you know, demands that the partner after they've left has to give back, you know, some of their the money that they're continuing to make from the representation that started at the previous firm. So to me, this but, sounds like a, a bit of a fancy way to have a non-compete type provision. Exactly. Right? It's it's in fact, if you if you if you look, it's sort of if you if you look online, you'll see some explainers will describe this as a sort of kinder, gentler alternative <laughs> to right. a non-compete. Right. So, uh, it's, but it is such an, as it is. But it is another way of, right. of stifling competition. Is another way of making sure that you know once somebody leaves your uh, you know leaves the aegis of your firm and tries to strike out on their own, they're not going to be making quite as much as they can. Um, you know, were it not for having yeah. had a relationship with you in the past. And I think most people have heard of non-compete, so that kind of helps set the stage of what we're talking yeah, it about. Helps here. Contextualize yeah. it, and well, and much, those themselves have come under fire. Well, and and. Much much like the, the conventional wisdom on many non-competes uh, in some states is that they're not enforceable, and you said that already about this provision. So specifically with New York, I mean, yeah. if I can get into that, there's there's a there's a rule of professional conduct in New York State, um, which is 5.6 a1, which basically says you know you can't restrict the right of a lawyer to practice um, after they've terminated a relationship with their previous firm. Right. Right. And there's case law that's like that's that's yeah. that's, that's backing this up as well. Right. So it's not like an iffy thing where like maybe this is an unfor- uh, uh, this is unenforceable. <laughs> It just is. It's spelled out in the legal. Right. Yeah, right, right. And and we should make clear that if I didn't already, that uh, the partners of Slendy and Gay, they're all members of the New York State Bar. They were in the New York office of uh, of Quinn Emanuel. Quinn Emanuel is trying to arbitrate this in California right. because that's where the firm is based. They're filing their motion in New York State because that's where they're based. But at a deeper level, uh, and this sort of gets to the second layer of what we're talking about. 
their complaints uh, from the Salendi uh, uh, attorneys, it kind of goes beyond just you can't enforce this, right? There was sort of another turn of the screw in this story. Sure. And I just want to go back quickly and say one more thing about this: these uh, forfeiture for competition provisions. Even though they're in the partnership agreement, in their motion, the Salendi and Gay partners say that as far as they're aware, Quinn Emanuel has never sought to enforce this provision okay. with any other group of partners and that have left. Yeah. And partners have left Quinn Emanuel. And that's before. not nothing. Like the, the fact that it came, that they chose to pick that fight, that happens a lot with non-competes too. That's a good, that's a good bit of context. But where, like, like where do we get a level deeper on this beyond just like it's sort of, you know, on the face uh, unenforceability? Sure. So in their petition, the Salendi and Gay partners say that uh, John Quinn um, and the managing partner of the New York office tried to get them to agree to a no poaching agreement. And okay. basically was using this provision as kind of a bargaining chip in order to extract a promise that they would not, when they left to form their new firm, hire any associates or staff members. Well, and let's get into the chronology there, right? So they leave the firm and, and Quinn, according to their petition, reaches out to them and says, you know, we would really like it if you didn't if you didn't reach <laughs> out to our to our associates. It would make things go smoother if you did. Right. There's a number of emails. And in their petition, they reprint some of these emails. They also uh, recount some oral conversations that they've had with John mm-hmm. Quinn and other principals at Quinn Emanuel in which they outline that uh, Quinn Emanuel basically said, you know, we want to have a friendly relationship with you. We want to make sure everything goes smoothly. But the thing that is most important to us is that you not try to hire away any of our associates. And in fact, if any of our associates apply for a job at your new firm, that you will not consider their application. And that's really, and that seems like that's, that's like the, the language from movies, right? Like, we'd like to keep this friendly. It would be a if real shame if some of our we associates want. were to find work at your place. Well, exactly. I was reading these emails and what struck me at was, was that like... You could either go fully to the one side of like, we've worked together for a long time. Please don't hire our associates. Like we need them right now. Or you go fully to the other side and like, but this was sort of a weird mix of the yeah. two. It felt like sort of friendly mobster stuff. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's weird. why it sounds like a movie thing <laughs> yeah. to me where right. it just sounds like, I don't know, like it's, it's such coded language. Like, right. let's keep this friendly guys. Yeah. And so to be clear, I mean, for someone who's who's listening and isn't aware of like employment mobility policy, mm-hmm. what what is wrong with, with, having an agreement like that with with you know saying that that we don't want we don't want you to poach our employees well i mean it just so happened that as this dispute was kind of going on between the Salendi and gay partners and quinn emmanuel the department of justice issued new guidance restating that no poaching agreements uh, between companies was uh, restricted competition mm-hmm. and you know wasn't legal um, and this is the sort of thing we've seen in lots of industries like the tech industry comes yeah to most yeah. recently that yeah all the like all the silicon valley stuff i mean know, anything that yeah. restricts the mobility of employees to try to get the best deal they can is is anti-competitive and that's and that's not legal. But there's even specific to the legal industry, there are some more things that make this sort of questionable. You're arguably interfering with a client's right to choose their own attorney. Mm -hmm. If you were a client of one of the formerly Quinn Emanuel, now Slendy and Gay uh, partners, and they have to hire all new associates and train them and bring them up to speed on your representation, uh, that can really disrupt your representation. And that really gets at how a lot of law firms are structured, right? Where clients very often interface directly with associates who are working on their right. matters. It's not always just FaceTime with the big named partner because they're very busy people with a lot under their umbrella. Yeah. So they might know the associates a bit better. And and again, as was the case with the forfeiture for competition provision, there's case law in New York holding that any agreement that forbids associates from accepting you know an offer at a departing partner's new firm, those are not enforceable because, again, they, they're prohibiting a, a lawyer from moving their practice and having their team in place. And that's you know that, that runs afoul of ethics rules as well. So, I mean, uh, your story, I thought, 
segued into a bigger picture that was really interesting that, that, you know, this comes at an interesting time for Quinn because they've put in other efforts to, to retain associates that are more, you know, more carrot than stick like we're seeing here. Exactly. No, they, they rolled out a new plan that was made public back in August to award, essentially give, dole out an extra bonus on top of existing bonuses, which were pretty generous to begin with, to associates who stick around for three years. Mm-hmm. So these uh, bonuses are calculated after you've spent a year at the firm. And then a little you, goosing for your loyalty and, or yeah, whatever. And, yeah. then, and then it matures three years later. Okay. So yeah, so they, it's clear that this is happening at a time when they're investing very heavily in um, associate retention. Um, Which may in some ways explain why they sort of really went in on this and were very upset about the idea of losing associates and sure. already on their radar of a thing they're trying to address. Yeah, and I, I think you know one of the things that kind of came out in my conversations with uh, with with experts and people who write about and study um, you know partner departures and things like that is these kinds of disputes or conversations over who goes, who stays probably happen all the time. It's just really rare to see them come to a boil in a public forum like this. And it can be, I thought you described it as like a, like a double-edged sword, right? For the, for the, a firm that gets involved in something like this. Sure. You might, you might get some of these people to stay with the firm, but, but it can hurt you moving forward. Right. It was double-edged sword. Wasn't my words, but that was a recruiter I spoke to who, who described it that way. That you know, law firms are going to put in these provisions and protections and these agreements, and they're going to they're going to try to maintain continuity of staffing. But you know, if it gets out that the firm is going to behave this way, I think you know anyone who's considering lateraling into or starting at you know a firm that's going to restrict the mobility of associates might want to think twice. Dinner show is something offbeat, and guys, I present to you for this week every attorney's worst nightmare being laughed at in open court. Yeah, this is a little bit of a twist on that. It's what happens when the laughter isn't even really directed at you. Okay, so this is a weird situation. It happened at the federal circuit. Um, a, a court granted this uh, farm equipment company called GLG Farms a rehearing in a patent infringement case. More patents. Finally. Can't, can't get away from it, guys. <laughs> so a rehearing in this case because during oral arguments held in April, um, quote, external noise was audible in the courtroom and it disrupted the attorney presentations. <laughs> Love um, an external noise. Yeah. So... Apparently, there was some kind of technical error that caused this whole problem, and the sounds of people talking that were actually outside of the courtroom uh, was piped into the proceedings. <laughs> this is so yeah. Well, just uh, I, I would I would wonder like what level or is there like a, a threshold here of like yeah. Well, th- it's j- it's funny that it was so disruptive. They're like, this is we we have to do this all over again. Well, here's what <laughs> a miscarriage of justice. Yeah, right. In, in filing, it in impeded this, upon this farm equipment <laughs> yeah. company in filing to get this rehearing. Here's what they wrote. The court's public address system was on, and two or more individuals, ostensibly employees of the court, were heard loudly conversing, even laughing. The talking was loud, constant, and disruptive to both the panel judges and the litigants. Now look, I've spent some time in courthouses, and the people who work there are lovely people, yeah. but they have hilarious conversations with each other. <laughs> uh, if it was like a couple of security guards like like shooting the breeze outside, I'll bet it was an interesting conversation. So apparently uh, women's voices were at play here. So, uh, you know, who knows who sure. they were in the courtroom setting, but they could be heard. And apparently it was so disruptive um, at the federal circuit, this is pretty regular at most circuit courts, 
there'll be oral arguments sort of back to back, like a bunch in a row. Yeah, yeah. So in an earlier um, oral argument before the one that we're talking about here, it was so disruptive that one of the circuit judges commented about the sound <laughs> and paused the session to have the issue resolved, but then it started up again. And then um, it's heard on the recording in that previous session saying, it's coming out of the microphone. <laughs> They're not laughing at you. It's so fun. Like, I mean, like every once in a while, like you'll see, uh, I don't know, initiatives about like, we're going to update courtroom technology. Right. And it's right. always like, it always seems like years behind, like when anybody else can do like a simple PowerPoint presentation. And it's just funny when it goes so badly so off, bad. the rails, off the rails. Well, like it this. doesn't like, hurt that a lot of judges are, you know, they're old, distinguished people. So a lot of times it feels yeah. like you're like teaching your grandma how to do something. Like, <laughs> like what's going on here? Well, I mean, this actually does all play into exactly what the argument was for the rehearing and it's that it violated the court's rules of decorum wow so it's when and the, basically it just means that when something's in session before one of these courts no one should be heard except for counsel making arguments and the judges themselves mm -hmm. so any kind of loud and disruptive noise like this could be a real problem right. and the reason people say that is i mean I can imagine you really probably can't truly get your day in court if you can't even get through your oral arguments. Look, I don't want to bring it back to our movie show, um, <laughs> but the uh, the climactic scene in Big Daddy would have been problematic for a whole bunch of reasons here. <laughs> Good point. But also Steve Buscemi yelling about his father from the from the, <laughs> yeah. the, you know, from the well, definitely that. It would have right. been really funny if the staffers were actually like having were like gossiping about like Pat and Tullabaloo. They're like, can you Ooh. believe Judge Gilstrap in Texas? He thinks he's going to start a new federal circuit down there. And that's I says to him, obviousness, what? <laughs> that's the kind of gossip that only happens in these Law 360 offices, guys. Right, it's true, it's true. Yeah, All so right. I think that's a good place to leave it, guys. That'll wrap up our show for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks, guys. I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Sam Reisman, and contributing reporters this week, Dorothy Atkins, Ryan Davis, Dave Simpson, Bonnie Esslinger, Keith Goldberg, and Kara Bales. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about any of the things we talked about, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks and join us again next week.